Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Tenth, a podcast about the rich history, culture, and contributions of the Tenth Circuit Courts. I'm your host, Leah Schwartz, a Wyoming lawyer and former Tenth Circuit law clerk. And I'm producer Tina Howell, the Emerging Technologies Librarian for the Tenth Circuit. On today's episode, we are joined by the Honorable Judge Bruce S. Jenkins, Senior U.S. District Court Judge for the District of Utah. He is here to tell the story of Allen v. United States, which is the historic case filed by over two dozen plaintiffs who suffered various cancers and leukemia they claimed as a result of nuclear fallout from government weapons testing in the Yucca Flats area of Nevada, a.k.a. the Nevada Test Site. The case was filed in 1979, and Judge Jenkins issued his opinion in 1984, finding that the U.S. government violated a duty of care to the plaintiffs, known as the downwinders, and that many of them were entitled to damages under the Federal Tort Claims Act. The U.S. later appealed, and the Tenth Circuit reversed Judge Jenkins' ruling. Nevertheless, the decision stands today as an incredible example of how our courts can hold actors, including the most powerful, to account. Thank you very much for being with us here today, Judge. It's a pleasure to see you. Thank you. You were appointed, as you say, to the U.S. District Court for the District of Utah uh, in 1978. Less than a year later, I believe, you took on the case of Allen v. U.S., which is the subject of our interview today. And I can only imagine that that case must still stand as one of the most significant of your career. Is that right? Uh, significant and uh, the most uh, intellectually challenging. Allen v. U.S. has been described as a blockbuster case. I know that the trial was attended by various media outlets from all over the world, really. Did you have a sense when the case first began that it would garner a lot of attention? I thought it was an important case, but I really lacked the understanding of interest all over the world, actually. But that's the way it developed. Do I understand correctly that there was an early challenge judge with respect to your assignment to the case? or your fitness to hear the claims? We had a nice young lawyer out of Washington, D.C., representing one of the agencies, the Atomic Energy Commission, who wanted me to stay the case while they did a background check to see if I were fit to be concerned with matters of some sensitivity that were secret. And I denied his motion, uh, telling him that I had just undergone a very extensive background check on the part of the FBI who searched back as far as my grade school teachers and found me fit to be appointed. And I thought we could go ahead. (laughs) That's um, a brave motion to file at the start of a case, I should say. (laughs) Well, what experiences and resources then did you draw on in considering how to approach not only the decision, but the procedural management and the trial of the case. I had had some personal experience in the political world. I'd been president of the state Senate. And so that I was 
educated in some of the challenges dealing with a number of people. And I thought we could manage the matter in a fashion that would be hopeful and helpful. We had excellent attorneys. There were attorneys on both sides that were very capable, very sharp, very nice, very energetic. And we had really, in the consolidated case, 1,192 named plaintiffs. And as the matter progressed uh, through preliminary motions, matters of that kind, it became apparent that we needed to figure out how to handle the matter. So I suggested to counsel that they get together and identify on an agreeable basis a quantity of plaintiffs. They chose 24 and selected 24, and I concurred in their selection as to those that would be fully tried in the case, hopefully to provide commonality in the event that we went on and had to deal with the remaining group in the 1192. So those plaintiffs then, those 24 emerged as the quote-unquote bellwether plaintiffs or test cases. They were selected by the lawyers. I see. And you tried all 24 of those individuals' claims in their entirety within the consolidated case of Allen v. U.S., is that right? That's correct. I find that incredible. 24 separate cases essentially rolled into one. I have a few stats about the trial that I'd like to share for our listeners. The case lasted 13 weeks, during which you heard testimony, I believe, from 98 witnesses whose testimony actually spanned 7,000 pages in the trial transcript. You reviewed 54,000 pages of written material in the form of the actual admitted trial exhibits. That is epic. (laughs) What can you tell us about the length and the scope of the trial and the the impact it had on your chambers and your docket and, and your life at the time? We were busy. (laughs) But I uh, fortunately had great clerks, gifted clerks, I would say, in retrospect, were extremely helpful to the court. And we just plowed ahead and set aside the time and kept up with the rest of the stuff as best we could. And we had a lot to do. And that's one of the reasons once we tried the matter in 1982, from September to the middle of December, we survived. (laughs) Because the action was against the United States, it was required under the Federal Tort Claims Act to be tried by statute to you as the court without a jury. And I'm wondering if you had you wished that you had had the ability to submit the case to a jury. I know from listening to prior interviews with you that you're a big fan of juries, respect juries. Juries serve a very useful function. And I've been an admirer of juries since the beginning of my tenure. In this particular case, I think that the demand for time on uh, 12 or 14 citizens dealing with an esoteric subject was better off to be handled by the court rather than by the jury, simply because of the nature of the challenge, and particularly the intellectual challenge. 
The testimony of the witnesses, you heard from all 24 claimants, I understand. These are the individuals described in your decision as those seeking, quote, solace for their test blame sorrow. I just had to share that turn of phrase. I think it's so great. Um, But you also heard from, as I mentioned, some 70 other witnesses. I'm wondering what testimony particularly stands out in your memory regarding the trial? It's been a while, (laughs) 38 years or more, as many as 43 years. There are a number of witnesses who stand out. As far as those who were named plaintiffs, I remember one mother who talked about a dying child. And children were particularly vulnerable to fallout and ended up with uh, leukemias that were fatal. And I remember her mother speaking of her child who died, how she held that child in her arms and blood was flowing from her eyes. That's what I remember graphically. And then the experts, the plaintiff's experts, particularly Dr. Carl Morgan, who was the director of the Tennessee Atomic Establishment, and a scholar from California, Dr. Goffman, who was a student of low-level radiation and a close student, were extremely competent and extremely believable for both their prior work and their ongoing work and their testimony in reference to the kind of damages that could result, not just from high-level radiation, but from low-level radiation. Many of the witnesses were excellent, able, thoughtful. I could give you some more, but the whole record is now back in the National Archives. (laughs) Well, no, those are wonderful examples. And the two experts you mentioned, Morgan and Goffman, you've described those gentlemen in high terms. Of course, long after the trial had been concluded and the decision fully rendered, I believe you were asked to provide some sort of commentary as to their contribution to your decision. And you mentioned them both as persons of, quote, historic dimension and great merit. Yes. Mr. Goffman sent you the book, The Angry Genie. When the book was sent to you, it was accompanied by a note that said, for Judge Bruce Jenkins, my deepest respect and appreciation for exemplary devotion to what America really stands for, real justice. Warmest regards. Speaking of children, I read that Senator Orrin Hatch met with several impacted families in St. George, Utah, while the case was pending, and he learned that children there would play under the trees and shake the fallout onto their heads and bodies, thinking that they were playing in the snow. That is a chilling image in addition to the one you just described provoking, no doubt, quite a bit of sympathy for these affected individuals. I'm wondering if you could also share, however, whether you felt any sympathy or what your response was to hearing from the government witnesses, those charged by their nation to research and achieve progress in the field of atomic science. I was impressed. There were good people who were endeavoring to do the best they can, I suppose. And I found in the case itself, a differing point of view. 
as to when people were exposed and the consequences of uh, exposure. The government's position traditionally has been one suggesting that fallout has to reach a degree of intensity that they like to call threshold in order for damage biologically to occur. And of course, both Morgan and Goffman were outliers to begin with in reference to the concept of threshold. Both uh, Morgan and Goffman indicated that any exposure to fallout, radiation of a particular kind, would cause damage. It was a question of how much damage. But the concept of threshold was an inappropriate concept. And of course, it's interesting that after the case was done, that the threshold concept in the United States kept going down and down and down. And the scientific proposition that fallout can cause damage to a person or an animal became uh, the primarily accepted uh, description of that particular consequence. Speaking earlier of uh, notoriety or newsworthiness, when I finally filed with the clerk in May of 84, the opinion, which was then an almost 500 typewritten page. As a result of being invited to give some speeches in Africa, I caught an airplane and went to Africa, to Liberia and to Nigeria. And believe it or not, in the local press in Liberia and in Nigeria, there was a reference to the Allen case. And the lawyers and judges to whom I talked were interested in not necessarily the case, but they were interested in the fact that I had the courage and the temerity to call government to account. In both countries at that time, they had experienced fairly recently military coup. And in Liberia, members of the prior government had been taken to the beach and shot. I was there to talk about liberty, freedom. <laughs> but I became with that group kind of like a rock star <laughs> because I had the temerity to call government to account. That's just a side. That's, yeah, no, that's incredible, Judge. Thank you for sharing that. And it does speak to just the reach of the opinion, which I'm glad you mentioned because I'd like to talk a little bit about the the actual decision you wrote, the memorandum of opinion. In Westlaw, I think it's over 200 pages. It's truly one of the most incredible pieces of legal writing that I've ever come across. And I know I'm not alone in that opinion. Um, I really encourage everyone to read it if they have yet to encounter Judge Jenkins' Allen v. United States decision. It includes multiple appendices and internal tables It also provides a full background on not only the hydrogen bomb, but nuclear fission, taking the reader all the way back to the discovery of the atom. It starts out very eloquently, and I'm wondering, Judge, if you might do us the favor of reading the introductory paragraphs of your decision. I'm happy to read. In a sense, uh, this case began in the mind of a thoughtful resident of Greece named Democritus some 2,500 years ago in a response to a question put two centuries earlier by a compatriot, Thales. 
concerning the fundamental nature of matter. Democritus suggested the idea of atoms. This case is concerned with atoms, with government, with people, with legal relationships, and with social values. This case is concerned with what reasonable men in positions of decision-making in the United States government between 1951 and 1963 knew or should have known about the fundamental nature of matter. It is concerned with the duty, if any, that the United States government had to tell its people, particularly those in proximity to the experiment site, what it knew or should have known about the dangers to them from the government's experiments with nuclear fission conducted above ground in the brushlands of Nevada during those critical years. This case is concerned with the perception and the apprehension of its political leaders of international dangers threatening the United States from 1951 to 1963. It is concerned with high-level determinations as to what to do about them and whether such determinations legally excuse the United States from being answerable to a comparatively few members of its population for injuries allegedly resulting from open-air nuclear experiments conducted in response to such perceived dangers. It is concerned with the method quantum of proof of the cause in fact of claimed biological injury. It is concerned with the passage of time, the attendant diminishment of memory, the availability of contemporary information about open air testing, and the application of a statute of repose. It is concerned with what plaintiffs, laymen, not experts, knew or should have known about the biological consequences that could result from open air nuclear tests. And when each plaintiff knew or should have known of such consequences, it is ultimately concerned with who in fairness should bear the cost in dollars of injury to those persons whose injury is demonstrated to have been caused more likely than not by nation state conducted open air nuclear events. The complaint in this action alleges that each plaintiff or his predecessor has suffered injury or death as a proximate result of exposure to radioactive fallout that drifted away from the Nevada's test site and settled upon communities of isolated populations in southern Utah, northern Arizona, and southeastern Nevada. Each of the plaintiffs or their decedents resided in that area. Each claims serious loss due to radiation-caused cancer or leukemia. Each asserts that the injury suffered resulted from the negligence of the United States in conducting open-air nuclear testing and monitoring testing results in failing to inform persons at hazard of attendant dangers from such testing 
and in failing to inform such persons how to avoid or minimize or mitigate such numbers. What a compelling start. Thank you for reading that, Judge. I get goosebumps hearing you read that. And I've got to say, it's such a wonderful break from my normal day as a trial lawyer to get to speak with you. So thank you. And I'm wondering why you felt it was so important to give the reader the background in science, why you personally felt as fact finder, it was so vital to understand the principles to the degree you did. I mean, I can understand why any judge would feel that there would need to be some basic grasp of the principles, but both of the experts, Goffman and Morgan, that we mentioned have commented in their work subsequent, just the degree to which you felt it was so important to really understand this. Um, So why was that? In order to really understand the problem for decision, it seemed to me that not only the reader, but the judge needed to be able to converse in language that was used to describe the problem. So that on a primary level, it seemed to me absolutely essential for me to understand what people were talking about. And to that extent, it was an educational opportunity for me, but also an educational challenge so that I could converse using the language of rads, ergs, so that I could understand what was happening when a nucleus was fragmented, where I could understand what was falling out and falling down and the half-life of dangerous particles. And it seemed to me in order for one to be able to decide, you had to be able to use at least in a primary way the language of science in order to accurately pinpoint what it is that people were complaining about. And it's a challenge. All of those things uh, motivated us, me and my staff, at that point to provide at least a primary scientific background so that those that began to deal with the actual problems as characterized in the language of science knew what they were talking about. And it's one thing that people should understand, I think, While we use words, words use us. And we have to be in a position to get behind the work in order to understand what the problem really is. And that was the effort. That was the challenge. Provide at least an introduction to both the method and language of science. And that's why maybe we shouldn't have done it. No, it's it's a wonderful education. It flows so logically. And what do you mean by that? Words use us. The dialogue that's occurring in the national debate is a perfect example of asserting with no factual footing. And people begin to think that the word as a word standing alone means something. But you have to get behind the word to say, what are you talking about? What are you really talking about? In order for a word to have meaning, you have to understand what the subject is. And if you stop with the word itself, particularly with generalizations, 
and particularly with assertions of historic facts when there is no history. We all of us get into trouble. Words should have integrity and the manner in which you describe something with exactitude and specificity is absolutely essential. Thank you for that, Judge. Thank you. You confess in the opinion that the concepts of radiation physics and even its basic language did not come naturally to you. What particular background did you have in science before you were confronted with the case? Are you just a naturally curious person? How did you come to understand this and be able to recite it so well? My uh, area of interest in school was not in the physical or scientific world. It was really in the world of how we treat one another. But I'm curious and I'm willing to be educated. This was an opportunity to hear from people who knew what they were talking about. So we accumulated texts. My background was uh, high school physics, some physical science when I had a brief stint in the Navy towards the end of World War II. And the use of a very busy library card, I guess, besides haunting the used books. The opinion describes the problem of uncertainty and speaks to the differences between judicial and scientific processes. You write in the opinion, we remain uncertain still of our scientific certainties. What can you tell us about that tension? between scientific truth and justice? Knowledge expands, but knowledge changes. The concept of atoms 2,500 years ago is different than the concept of atoms today. Knowledge expands, knowledge changes. And even in the world of science, we learn something new every day that changes what we've thought, not only for decades, but for centuries. And we have to understand knowledge itself is a moving target. In the litigation business, we're resolving a specific problem involving usually specific people or specific entities. We're dealing ordinarily with conduct. We're dealing ordinarily with portioning who gets to pay for what bad things are done. But science itself is different. In the 20th century or the 21st century or the 22nd century, that it is in the 16th century. And we have to recognize that. And we have to say, what did we know at this point in time? And one of the problems in this case, in my opinion, is the failure to educate people, to inform people, to warn people of danger. And the different kind of activities that exist, the kinds of preventive things that existed at Oak Ridge or up in the state of Washington, where atomic energy was being dealt with, and people were told how to use film badges to alert them that they may have overexposure, how to use Geiger counters, how to wash themselves, how to go under house roofs among other things, to limit the kind of access that atomic fallout has. Once you're exposed, how you minimize the consequence and to recognize that the consequence from fallout won't manifest itself sometimes for decades, 
as long as 25 or 30 years. You suddenly discover you've got cancer and you wonder why. So that's a long way of saying knowledge changes and we try to keep up with what we know and do the best we can with informing. I see. Well, we know the final chapter of litigation. The government appealed and the Tenth Circuit reversed your ruling. And I'd like to just ask a simple human question. After all the work you put into this case and the actual written decision, how did that feel? Well, uh, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that I try to do my job and they try to do their job. That's their job as far as the practical aspect of it is concerned. I was uh, disappointed because I thought the all-embracing concept of discretion was one of those words that you had to get behind. Discretion at a particular level is entirely different than discretion at a higher level. I had no problem with the fact that if those in charge said we need to conduct open-air experiments and we're going to hurt people, Let's try to relieve them of what possible hurt exists. But if as a matter of policy, we recognize and understand we're going to hurt people, we got to tell them, we got to warn them, we got to educate them. And the discretion at a particular level of operations is considerably different than discretion at the high level of policy making. So I thought they had missed the point, quite frankly. They quoted Supreme Court matters, one of which came down after we had heard the case. And the Supremes, I think, wouldn't let them in the door when they somebody tried for cert. That's right. Cert, cert was denied. It's been re-looked at since then. And indeed, had we been later on, I think that things would have been different. But uh, they were what they were. But there was fallout from that in social sense. And we ended up with Judge McKay and his concurring opinion suggesting that uh, Congress take a look at it. Senator Hatch thought as much. And Stu Udall, who is one of the plaintiff's attorneys, and Dale Harris uh, made good use of the opinion in approaching Congress. And Congress ended up, after 23 years, finding the king had a conscience and passed the first bill. And one virtuous thing they did was to enlarge those who were eligible for compensation from the uh, United States. And just this year, they extended that. And I forgot how far ahead they put it, but I think at least a couple of years to enable people who've been in the, the thousands to make an application and receive. They've now paid out under the congressional action in excess of $2 billion. So the king finally had a conscience. And that's a virtue that we have to give them credit for and recognize that perhaps an expanded quantum of people have been benefited by the recognition that the king can do no wrong concept. If you trace that back in history, they finally began to believe their own material. They thought they were God's agent on earth. God couldn't make a mistake, and they couldn't make a mistake because they were God's agent. 
and thus were insulated from uh, the reach of the law, a growth in the law, an expansion of the law, and fortunately, a final recognition on the part of decision makers that, hey, if we've hurt people in conducting our own activity, we ought to recognize that we need to compensate people. So that's a plus. And I, I take solace personally in the fact that uh, we helped open the door to enable people to finally recognize that you can get hurt even with low-level radiation. That's why you expand it to include miners who mine uranium. Why you expand, their science grows as well. With the Goffman-Morgan concept of hurt that extinguishes the concept of threshold is now well-recognized, well-recognized in scientific literature. Maybe they were better off losing at that point. Right. Actually, the, the trial lawyer that you mentioned, Dale Harrelson, who actually I think was awarded trial lawyer of the year in 1983, his work in this case, he represented the plaintiffs along with larger group, but he is quoted as having said, I have to say that it is probably better that we didn't win because if we had won this act being the radiation exposure compensation act would not have passed and compensation paid would have been limited to the few clients that we represented. Consequently, it is probably fortuitous that we ultimately lost litigation so that these people could be compensated, as you just said. And Dale Harrelson uh, also notes you as, quote, the most fantastic trial judge he ever had the honor of appearing in front of. So I have to get that in there, too. (laughs) Circling back to this concept of discretion that you were talking about, Judge, the Tenth Circuit reversed on grounds that the government's conduct fell within the, quote, discretionary function exception to the Tort Claims Act. Can you just briefly explain that exception for our listeners who who might not be familiar with that? And I'm sorry, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. I'm sure it's been some time since you've looked at this in your... Oh, the idea is that if the government effects a policy, high-level government, Congress, agencies, they're giving the responsibility of making policy, of deciding objectives. They have power to exercise judgment. They have power at that level, the highest of left, to exercise judgment. And in doing so, in exercising their responsibility, they are insulated for the government judgments that they make at that level, at high levels of policymaking. Now, when you get down to actual application, where you're dealing with operations, you make a decision as to how you drive, for example, your automobile. Do you drive it carelessly, negligently, haphazardly, or do you drive it carefully? At that point, you have a duty to do things carefully. And while you exercise judgment, the judgment that you exercise is of a different kind. You have a duty to be careful. You have a duty to live up to a limitation, a standard. And if you don't do it, the government has said, under tort claims, the government's vulnerable, liable. The effort is to have the government accountable for the decisions that they make at that particular level. 
policy level atomic energy have at it. But if you're going to say at policy level, we're going to run an experiment open air and we're going to kill or maim or hurt. Let's understand what we're doing. And if we're doing that at a policy level, then we have to explain to people on how to be careful, how to use the film badge, how to stay indoors, how to take a shower, not invite people to come explore and view the explosions that occur, to tell people in nearby cities, to warn them on an operation level, this is dangerous. We don't want to hurt people. We don't want to kill people. We don't want to have a consequence where they're hurt. And it doesn't show up for 20 or 30 years. We want people to be safe. Well, what did you tell the folks outside? Different was what you told the folks inside. And that's an illustration of the kind of decision-making. You can call it discretion if you want to, but you have to recognize the discretion at that level. If you get behind the word as to what's occurring, that you're talking about two different animals. Same word, different concepts. That's the best I can do at this point. That's great. That's great, Judge. And I just have to say, I really appreciated the way you explained this exception in your decision. With the analogy you put forward, you say, the government misperceives the intent of the act. For example, we choose the objective, Rome. We choose the road, the Apian way. Discretionary choices, both. But then how we travel the way is where what you're explaining is no longer a policy choice. <laughs> I just have really appreciated that analogy. So the Tenth Circuit came to an alternate conclusion about this discretionary function, as I mentioned. But in the decision of reversal says, there was ample evidence for you as the trial judge to have found the people who designed the downwind safety program, quote, deviated from optimum practices based on available scientific knowledge. There are then several pages of the decision dedicated to all the various deviations that might otherwise support liability in the normal tort context, or if this discretionary function exception had not been deemed to apply. But the court concludes, while we have great sympathy for the individual cancer victims who have borne along the cost of the AEC's choices, the Atomic Energy Commission's choices, their plight is a matter for Congress. And I suppose that's the paragraph you mentioned that Senator Hatch and others seized upon to get across that legislative effort. Uh, that's correct. What about the subsequent activities and protest at the Nevada test site? Did you follow those? And I'm wondering in particular your reaction when the government put a hold on full-scale weapons testing in, I believe it was 1992. I think it became a widespread appreciation in the scientific world that was attached to government to recognize that we needed to be awfully careful, even today. 
Anything else, Judge, that you'd like to share about your experience with the case of Allen v. U.S. for our listeners? Well, it says what it says. We did the best we could with what we had to work with. And in the pragmatic world of fact, the court is limited by the record, passes judgment on the problem. And dispute resolution, whether in complex matters or not, demands rational decision, not perfect knowledge. We're resolving cases so that people can spend their time doing something useful. That's one of the amazing things in the court system in the United States that you seldom find anywhere else in the world. That's one of the areas where we need to be very circumspect, proud, helpful, affirmative. It's wonderful to have a place where people can come to get help in resolving partial problems, whether it be with government, corporate structures, or otherwise. I think the fallout cases, frankly, enlightened me in more ways than one and made me appreciate the chance that people have of bringing their attention needed, the attention they need, let's put it that way, in help in resolving problems. I'm very proud of the follow-up case and the consequence that it seems to have had the foundation for people to become acquainted with what's actually going on, using the fancy language, I should say, whether it is in measurement or whether it is in length. The process whether complex or otherwise, it's the same process. You try to make the best judgments you can with the information that you have. That's about it, I guess. Well, you should be very proud, Judge, and I'm so grateful for your time today and speaking with us. Thank you for being so thoughtful in the words you have chosen in your career on the bench. We have used your words to great positive effect, I think, in many contexts. So thank you very much. Oh, you're sure welcome. I'm reaching a point where uh, I've been around a long time. <laughs> How old are you, Judge, if you don't mind my asking? I'm 95. Incredible. I, f- I just feel very lucky that you took the time to chat with us today, and I feel so fortunate that I was the one who got to ask you these questions. I know you've been asked them before, but I think you gave fresh spin I think this will reach some listeners who might not have had a chance to hear, you know, your YouTube interview or some of your other interviews that you've done. So this is just really going to be great for the society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. This episode was produced and edited by Tina Howell. Subscribe and download at the Historical Society's website, 10thCircuitHistory.org, or at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Special thanks to Greg Kerwin, Brent Cohen, Stacey Guion, and Diane Bowersfield. Thanks so much for listening.